Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Well, everybody, today we are here with David Grandy, who leads strategic innovation at Kaiser Permanente. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad to start this conversation. I think that we've got a lot of interesting topics that are all interrelated, and we're going to do a little bit of wandering there. But if we may, I would like to better understand how a clinical ethics officer ends up leading innovation. And is there a connection between those two roles that you can make for us? Yeah, it's a great question and a long and winding journey from one to the next. My undergraduate degree was in applied and professional ethics. So of course, I was told I had one of the most useless majors on the planet. I always knew that I wanted to be in healthcare. And so I took a bridge year as an intern and worked in an ethics center at a medium-sized Midwestern health system. Did you always know you wanted to do ethics in healthcare or what was the connection there? It was just, it was a curiosity to me, right? The ability to connect something that was very intellectual to something that was fundamentally human. And it was a remarkable experience because it put me at bedside with both patients and families at times that were incredibly intimate. They were making decisions about life and death, literally. literally. And doing that, of course, within the context of a care team. And my role often was less about the ethics and more about the communication. How do you understand where people are coming from ultimately and help them collectively make good decisions? And really values is what it comes down to. Ultimately, that was it, helping people to get clear on those values. And I think ultimately that is the bridge between clinical ethics and the work of innovation. It's helping people to get clear on what they value, get clear on intent, understand need in a very deep way, and then solve for those things. I love that. I read about you, and I don't know who did this description, thinker, teacher, explorer, and partner. And I, having done my research, would add, I think, philosopher to that list, because it seems to me that's also what you're bringing together And it's not, again, in a let's just think and talk about things way, but actually executing on how people experience value, innovation, healthcare. I often refer to myself as a creative pragmatist, which I think sums up a lot of Mm -hmm. what you're saying, Deb. And that idea is, can we really drive different kinds of thinking that account for this myriad of, of needs that I've described? but not in a way that's about some whiz-bang, 20 years out, whatever. There are these moments where you have to go from the big idea to what can we actually implement. And I think that's important because my view is innovation is an innovation until it exists in the real world. So you have to be able to do both, think big and execute in small ways in service of that broader, longer-term vision. So as we think about innovation, one of the things that came out of the pandemic was, of course, virtual care. And a concept from that was really around digital equity. existed before the pandemic, but I think just rose in prominence as we saw the impact of digital inequity 
But can we start with a foundation of how you think of what digital equity is? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll take a step back from that and then answer your question directly. It starts with, I think, a recognition that more and more digital tools are a requirement, an on-ramp, not only for uh, different and some would argue even better forms of, of healthcare, but also to participate in society generally. And that's why it's so important. You will hear people and organizations talk about the so-called digital divide. And that is basic and important, right? Typically in that context, the digital divide refers to access to affordable devices and broadband. And the knowledge of how to use them. Well, this is what's key. So in our work, we always talk about falling in love with problems deeply understand the problem, the dimensions of the problem, and really the lived experience of those who are facing that problem to get insight about what we need to solve for. And what we found in our work very early on was that those components of the digital divide were necessary but not sufficient. What you're alluding to, knowledge, important, literacy, uh, another way to express that, comfort accessibility? Have we designed interfaces in ways that are intuitive to use, that take into account unique needs, those who are visually impaired, those who are cognitively impaired, those who are older? Have we thought about the use of data, privacy? Have we communicated those to people in ways that they can understand? These are all of the dimensions that either make for a successful digital interaction or don't. And when you think of the problem in those myriad ways, you start to realize that simply handing a person a device and saying, here's more affordable broadband doesn't move the needle. And there are actually many studies. There was one out of the LA Unified School System during the pandemic where enormous investment in laptops and broadband for students and yet engagement made no difference. They weren't able to effectuate that. Because it's not the tool, right? It's, it's what's done with the tool that makes such a difference. So what are we doing with those tools in healthcare delivery? Yeah, well, I think a lot of things. The first is bringing awareness to the complexity of this problem. And I think that's important. Part of our responsibility as an organization, I think, is to use our platform to partner with others and to help others in and out of industry to really understand more broadly and deeply what needs to be solved for. I think the reality is within healthcare, we can't solve all of these problems on our own. It's some of these things are not necessarily in our sweet spot, but what we can do is champion the cause. We can partner with others and use the gravitas of the Kaiser Permanente name and brand to do that. And then begin to look at very specific types of solutions. There are some in which we're giving people devices and helping them to set those devices up. There are some where we're giving the people, uh, some people opportunity to interface with us in very basic ways like text messaging, Uh uh, which increases both usability and level of comfort. We're starting to do things from a design perspective where rather than wait for problems to emerge, where we realize that something that we've put into our digital tools doesn't work for a segment of the population, We're actually moving the testing of that upstream with specific populations to try and tease some of that out sooner so that once we get into production, things are far more seamless. One of the things that came out of the pandemic in our learnings at Kaiser Permanente was post-cardiac care and rehab. And what was fascinating was 
when people didn't have to come in, but actually had a virtual option for their rehabilitation process, we found they didn't have to necessarily leave work, find transportation, have a copay, and figured out how to do rehab in their own environment, which is kind of the point of it all anyway. And so I just love that there were hundreds of little experiments that went on that we were able to learn from that, again, were digitally enabled and that the pandemic really pushed us into. I think it's been a whole paradigm shift of how we now practice medicine pre and during post-pandemic. Certainly the kinds of things that we can do with digital tools, more continuous engagement, providing real-time feedback to people, making it easy and convenient. Those are all important ends. You also touched on something that I think is really important. Fundamentally, these are human problems, right? And humans live within the context of society and their own realities, their family lives, et cetera. One of the things that we discovered throughout many different phases of the pandemic was we, without maybe thinking about it, set up solutions that required people to come to us. And there were good reasons for that, certainly. But when you're raising a family and you're working two jobs, you don't have easy access to public transportation, you can't get time off work, those become real barriers, real inequities that to a degree, digital solutions can help us at least bridge, maybe not solve entirely, but I think your example is, is a great one to that end. And even for folks who maybe just do work one job, have a car, have paid time off, if we can enable something that works better for them, there's the possibility that we're also going to reduce the cost of delivering that care, which then makes more available to everyone within that ecosystem for care delivery, care consumption, and helps everybody with their health, I think. Yeah, ultimately, those are the aims. When I think about the remit of at least our team in innovation at KP, we always talk about double-sided or double-play innovations, and that is one lens is really on the business and affordability, reducing cost is one of those things. Now, to your point, that has a ripple effect to everybody, right? That's good for society if, if we're able to do those things. Secondly, we think about what's good for people, for our members, for our clinicians, for our partners. How can we create great experiences for them? And I think those two things go hand in hand. We can create great experiences that ultimately reduce cost and drive affordability. And that's what we're always trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. We hear a lot about members and patients and consumers in this whole digital experience, but you just touched on something that having seen patients for 25 years is very near and dear. And also understanding the stress, the burnout that providers are going through can you talk about how your innovation work also looks at how practice is changing and can still help sustain the joy that people went into this profession for? That is a really hard problem and a really difficult question to answer. I wish I could say that we had some insight in, in how to sort of untangle the, all of these issues that, that lead to feelings of burnout and, and a lack of joy. What I will say is, is this, in the work that we do, and I alluded to this earlier, it's always about starting with the problem. I think so often, and this happens maybe for good reasons in, in the technology space, but so often we start with the idea. I've got this great idea about a, an application or a new kind of technology or the way that we could put something together. And while those things are interesting, they may not be solving real problems, they may not be solving the right problems, and they may not be solving the largest problems. 
And the connection that I make is if that's the philosophy that we use, and then we introduce those things to clinicians, they become burdensome. And that can lead to burnout. It's like, here's one more thing that doesn't really help me in my day. It doesn't really solve a problem that I have, which is why we always start in our work with the people. What is the need fundamentally that we are attempting to solve for? And then let's understand that so we can develop a real solution that, you know, moves the needle. Totally agree. And I I think of, again, just in the practice of medicine, solving the problem of documentation by having scribes. Maybe we could go a step further and go, you know, what is the problem that we're really trying to solve through documentation, which is how do we help people take better care of, of their patients as well? One of the aspects of work that you were involved in was reimagining ambulatory care and what physical spaces actually look like. I've had the privilege of actually touring them, talking to people practicing in those spaces. And I know that one of the things that they did try to solve for was that human connection by having almost shared workspaces so that you could interact with people in between patients. There was shared community spaces that you could access whether or not you were there to get medical care. And now, as I think backwards on that a little bit, again, we're all getting care from home. What's the next thing that we might need to be thinking about as we're reimagining care delivery? Well, I think there's a couple things that I'm just curious about. One of those is that virtual interaction when somebody is in their home and a provider or, or clinician is, is somewhere else. I think we were forced to ramp up our capabilities in that way very quickly. We had to. It was urgent that we do so, in fact. And now I think many of us are taking a step back and saying, how can we enhance those interactions? There are things, even simple things that we can do that make the way that we interact through virtual channels better, including basic things like just making eye contact with somebody throughout, which uh, in the early days, you know, we had a a joke about a hashtag Tony Fauci ceiling, because, you know, in many of his, you know, press conferences, (laughs) that's that's more of what Uh you saw. You know, and I I say that, of course, tongue in cheek, but it's it's a basic thing. Then you think about if we truly are going to move to an environment where we are bringing more and more to where people are, i.e. in their homes, we've got to think about different types of solutions that then don't require people to come in if they don't need to. Simply having a televisit, but then saying, well, now I need to see you in person, or now there needs to be some other kind of interaction doesn't necessarily solve the fundamental need that's there. So I think we'll start to think about types of of services and capabilities that are far more deployed, far more dispersed, probably smaller, that lead to very different types of interactions when people actually do need to come in, as opposed to sending them to to large medical centers and, and that sort of thing. And so really what we're talking about are hybrid interactions right? Which is there is a a digital channel, a virtual component that is supplemented in really seamless ways with in-person interactions so that it all feels like it goes together and not a, this is our digital interaction, this is our in-person interaction, and they don't really connect to each other. There is so much challenge right now in the world of healthcare in terms of access. And we keep talking access, access, access. But what people don't need is access. What they need is their problem solved. And I think it goes back to what you were saying. I don't need to come in necessarily, but that is the pathway by which I get my problem solved. 
And so I think that starts to go back to that whole, what is the problem actually, instead of the idea that I think could really turn care delivery in a new direction if we can get together on that. It's just fascinating to me. We used this term many years ago, accelerating expertise to reflect, I think, a a bit of what you're pointing towards, Deb. And, And that is, there are some ways, probably very narrow ways, frankly, at this point, that will increase over time, but some very narrow ways where we can use technology to say, when somebody presents with X, Y, and Z, we know that we're going to need to do some things downstream in order to make a good mm-hmm. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Testing will need to be done. Some diagnostics will need to be done. So can we accelerate that expertise so it becomes the first step so we can put that information into the hands of a clinician who can then solve the problem in less steps? Yes. I think that's the promise that technology and these kinds of interactions I'm talking about holds. I agree. So thinking of access, also thinking of who has care, and then how digital health can change potentially that model. What does it look like for historically kind of poor payers, Medicare, Medicaid? I don't know that there's so much faith (laughs) that these systems are working so well already. How do you actually, again, make that shift into this different world? And how do you align incentives to make that possible? It can't be a race to the bottom. We cannot just commoditize medicine. And when we do have that accelerated interaction and learning, how is it that we're going to be able to reach those folks and those payers in a way that's going to be meaningful? Well, I think you have to attack it from a couple of different dimensions. One certainly is from an advocacy perspective. And I can't think of a project that we've done in the last four years where we haven't drawn heavily on our advocacy partners. When we identify those those gaps where there is a policy barrier or implication that we're trying to work through or a broader way of thinking that we need policy to account for, We work to address those things directly with policymakers and with government. So I think that's certainly one way. We often also take the approach of saying there are services that do exist today, government services, community-based services that people are very unaware of. They don't access what is available to them to help bridge some of these gaps that you're alluding to. So to the degree that we can facilitate those connections, Not only does it help the member because they're getting access to a resource that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise, but it also starts to show what true demand for those services is to those payers. And that is a way that we can almost generate a perspective, data, if you will, to help them understand what is and isn't working. So let's talk about data. Medicine is very outcomes-based. We're using that data for evidence-based protocols that we talk about. We, you know, do studies and see if this is working or not. And I think that there's now not just the medical data, but the overlap with social health data that's really helping us look at health in a holistic way. When I started my practice, I used to think that I was just going to change the world one patient at a time. And these interactions were going to be healing and the medicine I was going to help them with was going to change their lives. And I wouldn't say that I became more cynical, but maybe just more knowledgeable about the fact that behavior change is really hard and there's only so much that can happen inside an exam room. And I feel like we're really now on the brink of understanding how all of these things interact in terms of medical care, 
the education you grew up with, the zip code that you had, your access to care down the road. How are we now going to use data in this digital equitable space in order to provide different and better and more affordable outcomes? That was a long windup. That was a long windup. These are complex issues. There's no question. And I, you know, I would just say as, as my way into the question, there is no magic bullet to any of this, right? Including data. But, and also, to your point, data is starting to give us more of a 360 view, if you will, of our patients. And I think that requires a couple of things. The first is getting clear on the data we have, the bias that may exist in that data, scrubbing the data, harmonizing it, if you will, and getting it to a place where we can actually use it to drive insight. That's step number one. Step number two understanding what publicly available data sets we have access to that can help produce these rounder pictures of people. You've referenced some of them, social health data, neighborhood deprivation index data, economic data. Then there's a set of data that I think is, is maybe more controversial in this space and something that we're certainly very thoughtful about. And that is other data sets that speak to consumer behavior, lifestyle data, purchasing, et cetera what people watch on television. And these things are interesting because they do, if used in the right ways for the right ends, give you some indication of how people behave and effectively give you some sense of likes to likes. Well, here's a person, I can't tell that it's David specifically, but somebody who has these characteristics that behaves in a particular way that seems to respond to these kinds of interventions. And I think when we're able to connect those dots, clean, safe, non-biased, harmonized data, more rounded data that comes from traditional kinds of, of places, and then some other interesting kinds of data that really do speak to behavior, if we can develop models that drive insight off of those things in the right way, then I think we'll really be able to, to do some things in terms of that behavior change, not just insight generation, but we're a ways off from being able to do all of that well. So when we think about digital health and we've talked about outcomes, how are you determining value right now? You know, in, in, this is a question that in the innovation space, everybody struggles. With. Always comes up. Yeah, it always comes up. What, what do you measure? And what I always talk about is finding phase-appropriate measures for the work that we do. You referenced our, our deep commitment to evidence-based medicine. When I think about evidence-based medicine, it implies something which is an accepted body of knowledge that has been in development in some instances for years and is, is quite mature. In many cases, it starts with the scientific method. And the scientific method is, is certainly, you know better than I, begins with hypotheses mm -hmm. and testing. And it's through that kind of test and, and learn cycle that you begin to make progress. Well, innovation is at the other end of that continuum. We're constantly in the test and learn space. So while we have our eye to big outcomes, and, and those are the things that we've mentioned, affordability, a materially better member and provider experience. We're often starting with small things, proxies, if you will, that say the hypothesis, at least in part, is bearing out. So keep going, mm -hmm. keep going. But the types of you know, big outcomes that we look for, Deb, are, are no different than the health system writ large. 
better quality, better access, cost reduction, better experience. Ultimately, that's what we're here to do. We're just at the front end of it in many cases. And to even see this being driven down to the individual space, right? To have people do their own iterations and what's working and, and how do they improve their own health and communicate that in such a way and then embed it into behavior because it's just, it's hard to get there. One space that we know that's really, really challenging when it comes to behavior change is actually addiction. And there is a, I think, growing role recognizing virtual care in that space when people are ready, it's like I tell people when I want to get my hair cut, I don't want to wait three weeks. I, I want it now. When people are ready to make a change when it comes to substance use disorder, that's also a lot of the case. You have to capture that moment. And virtual care has allowed that to happen in a very opportunistic, good way to be able to get people on meds or get them into a treatment place. What's happening in the innovation space around that that you can talk about? Yeah, I'll pick up on a couple of things. And and we have not worked in addiction uh, medicine specifically, but have worked in behavioral health more broadly. And I think what your comment about moments, we call them moments that matter. The idea being that when those times come up, it is when a person is most accepting of a behavioral intervention. They've come to some recognition that things in life need to change and you need to capitalize on those to your point. Interestingly, sometimes the best interventions are a human-to-human intervention in that way, which technology can enable by getting people connected to a peer group or a mentor or somebody who they respect, somebody who's been through the same kinds of things. But to be able to do that at scale, a one-to-many kind of model with a one-to-one in particular moments, I think that is something that uh, technology can be leveraged to do. Yes, absolutely. And again, the impact of that, the ability to have that encounter virtually, I I think is so different. As you lead a team of innovators, what does that work practically look like at Kaiser Permanente at least? And how, again, you're trying to translate that into care delivery? It really varies. We work on a portfolio of, of projects all of which are in different phases. So and how do they even get to be projects? Yeah, it, it really depends. They are all in some way or the other rooted in the enterprise strategic plan. So that's where we, where we start. We want to make sure that we're working on the highest priorities of the organization. They often cross multiple functions in places where a particular part of the plan is, is narrow and there's a need to go deep. We have lots of people who, who do that. So our work is always crossing three or four or more functions. Such as IT, care delivery, facilities, those kinds of things, I would imagine. Okay. Yes, all of those. Okay. Um, And then certainly the partners in the organization that we work with, government relations, marketing, communications, legal, those folks are integral to us being able to develop real solutions. So often there are gaps. There is something in the organization that we know requires a big move in order to execute on. It may have no precedent at Kaiser Permanente, and these are the kinds of things that will ultimately come to us. They're often broadly in the space of growth and consumer experience, but also in social innovation. So community and social health are partners of ours pretty regularly. 
So on a day-to-day basis, it depends on the project. We may be interviewing members and consumers, folks who are not at Kaiser Permanente, who can give us kind of a broader perspective on their experiences to understand need. We may be shadowing clinicians, more so in the pre-COVID days than now, but there are ways that we can do that to understand the pain points that they have day-to-day and to get really clear on, Mm -hmm. on what those needs are. We may be in a design studio with teams, not only our own, but other collaborators, really trying to unpack a problem, to map a problem, and then begin to ideate around a problem. We may be prototyping different services or solutions or facility spaces a little bit less now, but certainly that's been part of the work. And then, of course, there's the realities of the organization. Moving these kinds of things through a complex organization like Kaiser Permanente requires leadership and negotiation. It requires helping people understand the intent behind things. It requires making a business case. Those are the things that people don't see in the background that Mm -hmm. make innovation work. It's not just about the idea itself. It's about positioning the idea in the right way so that it can get momentum and support and actually start to then connect to the parts of the organization that help make things real. And as I'm listening and connecting this to what was in the beginning of our conversation, again, it's not the idea that someone had, it's the problem that got solved with here's the idea to solve that problem. And I can only imagine how exciting that is how much work it also has to be to implement. And then you still have to figure out if that was the right idea to solve that problem. And there's so many different paths you can go down with every problem that you have in front of you. Yeah, it's the work that we do is complex, multifaceted, always. It's the nature of it. I will say that we try and strike this balance in our work between the big idea, what is the North Star Mm -hmm. that we're ultimately trying to move towards? And then a far more agile approach, Mm -hmm. uh, which is if we understand the problem deeply and we know sort of where we're going, let's try one small thing very quickly and see if we can make our way Mm -hmm. into these bigger solutions. Otherwise, to your point, Deb, you work on something for years and the world and the organization moves on. The nature of the problem changes and the solution becomes somewhat irrelevant. Yes, Now, that's hard because, again, the kinds of things that we're digging our teeth into do take quite some time if you want solutions that help take not just incremental steps, but really big, bold steps. So it's always this sort of balance that we're trying to achieve. It's it's not easy. It is. You know, we've seen a lot of people come into healthcare as entrants and they're going to have a brain trust and figure it out. And then, you know, time goes by and well, healthcare is hard. <laughs> and, and we've known that for a long time. And it is complex. And there are things that we can be doing all the time to iterate on doing it better. And those collective iterations in and of themselves can actually change the whole nature of the problem as well. Yeah, there's two things I would pick up on there. I'll take your last point first. And that is within the organization, we think of innovation as a social activity as much as a creative or business activity, which is to say we work in ways that are highly collaborative. The digital equity work that I referenced, over 200 people from across Kaiser Permanente were involved in shaping that work. That has the benefit downstream as you start to think about implementation of of people starting to say, 
I want to be a part of that because I helped shape it. Mm -hmm. And so we're always looking for kind of this top down. Are we attached to the right things in the organization? And do we have the right levels of leadership saying, yes, go? And the bottom up, which is people doing the day-to-day work of the organization, clamoring to move the work forward. So I think that's the social component. You also alluded to entrance into healthcare. And it's, it's a fascinating part of the business for somebody who works in innovation, the startup community. Mm-hmm. And I spend a fair bit of time with startups in different levels of maturity. And I think you're right. Many of them come in with a, a big idea and this notion that they're going to transform healthcare from the outside in. And my advice to them is, yes, we need you because you have a type of capability and a type of talent and a freedom that large organizations don't. But and also, you must understand the realities of healthcare deeply, the business of healthcare deeply, and you need to understand how you insert into the existing chassis of healthcare to transform it. If you think you're going to have some big, bold idea that turns the industry upside down, it's a fool's errand. And coupled with that is money, right? And part of the reason we are seeing so much innovation happening outside in is venture capital investments. So someone does think all these things are the next thing that's going to change healthcare, and they're betting with their wallets, they're investing their dollars literally, and it's not a democratic process, is it? It's not that there's any one entity that says these are the problems that we should be solving. And it's really the the creativity and the drive and the passion that people have for all of these different pieces that I think are going to fundamentally change things in ways that we can't imagine. No, that's right. And I think, you know, the the partners in the VC world have a really important role uh, to play in that because they articulate a clear vision of the future. An investment hypothesis or thesis comes from that. And then they fund many, 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 many bets in ways that we certainly cannot. So I think the tension there, I use this word tension. I I love tensions, actually. I think they're super healthy, right? Uh, Because there's this push and pull that pushes people to excellence, frankly, at the end of the day. The tension is, can you get a startup or a community, a portfolio of startups, if you will, to innovate at scale? in ways that insert into the health system and solve problems that matter. Can you get that to happen while simultaneously the traditional players are actually driving innovation and have capacity to change? And if you can marry those two things up, I think there really is a a beautiful partnership there. The traditional players have scale, they have reputation, they have industry know-how, And to a degree, they have access to capital that the startups don't. The startups have a different mentality, hyper-focus, and a way to drive true innovation incrementally that can get to scale if the conditions are met. So there's something in between those that I think is, is really interesting. So what advice are you giving folks that come to you, those startups? Well, very similar with things that I've that I've shared uh, already in the conversation. Did you start with an idea or did you start with a problem? When I sit with founders, what I'm listening for is do they deeply understand the problem that they're attempting to solve? And do they have working knowledge, deep working knowledge of the business? If those two conditions are met, then I'm willing to have a more real conversation with them about their product, service, platform, solution that they have. 
I think also, do they understand where they fit into the business and how it is a part of that broader ecosystem? I have yet to see a startup that has the whole healthcare ecosystem figured out and wants to play across all of that. So if you're going to contribute or innovate in a very narrow lane, which is important, you have to understand how that extends to what's up and downstream of you. And not everybody thinks that way. Yeah, uh, Many of them come to the table with, I've got a great idea for X. And when you really start to push and say, what do you understand about X? You know, what are the critical assumptions that you haven't accounted for here? Mm-hmm. It doesn't and go too deep. It doesn't go very deep in, <laughs> in some instances. Yeah. Um, I just want to bring back one concept because I think, again, people are rich with ideas. They're also blind to bias. And that's one of the places that, again, I think healthcare itself has struggled with. We know that Black babies who have a Black pediatrician actually have less morbidity and mortality. We've talked about in the KP community, Black women's health around childbirth, et cetera. How does the innovation process help identify and eliminate bias? We talk a lot about equity-centered design, which is a nascent movement in, in many respects. As with many things, it starts with awareness, an acknowledgement that as an individual, I have bias, an acknowledgement that in the course of driving innovation, we can inadvertently create structures that create disparity because of the biases that we bring to the table. There's no great way around these things, but we try as best we can in the context of the early phases of work when we're understanding the problem and understanding need to bring as many diverse voices to the table as possible. So that is ensuring that we have black and brown participants with us when we do ethnographies. It's ensuring that many forms of diversity, economic diversity, gender identity diversity, that all of these are represented to the degree that we can. It's never possible to do it as robustly as we want, but it helps. As we get downstream, we are testing solutions with those individuals. And then I think at the, at the real heart of this, um, and this is something that, that frankly we struggle with, it is ensuring that more people are participating in solution development who represent the wide range of of diversity that exists. I would love to have, for example, more black and brown designers, innovators, as as part of the innovation community writ large. Uh, And it's a problem that many are working on. Uh, It goes even back to early childhood education, high school, uh, where people are being exposed to design and innovation as a profession, as a discipline, as a way of helping pipeline. But those are systemic problems that take many years and a lot of different angles to solve. But those are at least some of the ways we're trying to move the needle. That sounds great. Strategic innovation is something that is amazing and exciting to happen on a company-wide level, a care delivery model, and it also boils down to us as individuals. I alluded to that ability to run our own experiments. I know that in my own mind, I've had brilliant ideas that probably I could have thought a little bit differently about or or taken to a a conclusion. What do we do as individuals with our bright ideas? We've talked about the difference between an idea that's just a bright idea versus solving a problem. How do we live our lives in such a way that we actually are innovators ourselves? Well, I'll give you some thoughts. 
The first of which is, if you take as a premise that innovation is about challenging the status quo, by definition, it requires grit. You're going to be told no dozens and dozens of times before those breakthrough moments happen. Some of the work that we've done at KP, end to end, it was seven years before an idea made its way through production and then became woven into the DNA of the organization. You mean we would have some resistance to being challenged as well? Every organization (laughs) has resistance. That's the nature of challenging the status quo. The beauty, of course, is if you can make it through to the other side, that idea becomes woven into how the organization does business and it perpetuates. So I think the first is it's just that grit of knowing that you've got to keep pressing no matter what. I think the second thing is to understand that timing matters. For people who work in innovation, they are often visionary. As I say, we can see around corners and not everybody can. In fact, most people probably can't. And so as those folks are starting to read tea leaves and see signals and understand that things change, timing becomes right. There are numerous instances where I've worked on something that sat on a shelf for two or three years, and then the moment was right. And I could pick that off and say, maybe this is the right timing to move something forward. So I think that's the second piece. And then the third piece, I think, is just being grounded in why we do this work. For me, it's about helping to materially improve the lives of our members and our communities. And I get up every day thinking about that. And that keeps me grounded on those days where I am banging my head against a wall because I've met resistance. I know why I'm doing this work. Thank you so much for your time, for the conversation, and really for the work that you lead. I know that you would be the last to take individual credit and, and, and bring that to your team. It, it does take all of us in this space. David, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so grateful to be in it with you. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Fuse with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have, and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals.